Every time I stand up after I've been recording, it's like wet butt cheeks. Yeah, so I was trying to avoid that. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. Today is Saturday, July 2nd, and I have a lovely guest here with me today by the name of Eli. Eli, why don't you tell the people who you are, tell them your zodiac sign and your pronouns. I am a January Aquarius. My pronouns are she, her. I almost messed that one up. I got it. (laughs) Um, It's okay. You don't have to be sure. (laughs) That's it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um... Do I have any announcements? I'm going to be traveling in a couple of weeks, so if that is going to inhibit any of the episodes coming out, I will make an announcement, but for now, we'll just plan for everything to be normal. So today's topic is a topic that Ela and I... So... (laughs) So today's topic is a topic that Eli and I have kind of been texting back and forth about over the last couple of months, and we were like, okay, we should just sit down and do like a whole episode on this because there's a lot of things to talk about. And honestly, we could have probably gone way further into depth about these topics, but it's just one of those things that you just keep going down the rabbit hole and there's just more and more information. So we're just honestly kind of scraping the surface of it. But today we are talking about prison conditions. Is that what we should call it? Like I guess, yeah, prison. Be the closest. Just prison. <laughs> Just <laughs> prison. Just prison. <laughs> Two little white girls who've never been to prison. We're definitely experts on the topic here. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to start with the history, and then we're going to... The way I structured my notes today is we'll talk about life on the inside and life on the outside. So first, I wanted to just talk kind of about where prisons came from. So prisons were originally facilities that held people who were unable to pay fines for their crimes. And because of this, so many impoverished people were unable to get out of prison. So they decided to set time limits for how long people had to remain imprisoned. And this is kind of still the way like our bond system works. People who can't afford bond to have to stay in jail where like rich people can just get out. So it's still, even though there's like time limits on how long people have to stay in jail, it's still keeping the impoverished in jail. Isn't a bond before you do like your trial? It's whether or not you stay. Do you hear that plane? Yeah. (laughs) Only because like you, you made a face and I was like, oh shit, what did I do? And then I realized it wasn't me. No, you're good. Okay. Say that again. I might be completely wrong, but I thought the way, like, even if you pay your bond, you still will eventually have to do your time, too. It's just whether or not you will be in jail prior to your trial or court hearing. Yeah. Okay. And then also there's fines for prison. Like, there's alternate. You could do a prison sentence or you could pay a fine. Not for everything. For, like, petty crimes and stuff. If you have the money, you can just not go to jail. 
But if you don't have the money, you're going to serve time. <laughs> so the Romans were one of the first to use prisons as a form of punishment rather than just a detention center. And they had a prison in their underground sewage system that was basically just a bunch of cages contaminated with human waste. It was like all these, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Cellars? Not cellars. Dungeons? Dungeons, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, dungeons. Just a bunch of dungeons that like all these people were in, which is really gross. (laughs) (laughs) When we were with Savannah in Israel the other day, and I was like, me and... Me and Eli, we share, like, one brain cell, so. (laughs) And it switches back and forth. Yeah, like, we're both so fucking smart, but we can't be smart at the same time. (laughs) Like, one of us has to be in bimbo mode. Actually, I wouldn't even say bimbos, because I think bimbos are, like, incredibly smart. Like, you have to reach, like, a certain level of smart to, like, achieve bimbodom. And it's not even that. It's just, like brain no function like <laughs> it doesn't work anymore brain no working <laughs> brain no working not a lot going on up there <laughs> we just share it yeah i got a breeze going through <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i love that i wish i had a breeze going through right now because i'm hot okay got the sweaty butt cheeks activated okay so gross Sewage system prison in the Roman time. Not much has changed. No. Yeah, literally, that's what I was thinking when I was... So all this is, like, from Wikipedia. Like, the basic, like, ancient knowledge of prisons. And it's really not much has changed at all. It's kind of crazy. So, imprisoned peoples. And also, I just want to go ahead and say up front, I'm going to do my best to say imprisoned people, incarcerated people rather than inmates and prisoners. And if, like, that slips out, I'm really sorry because I'm trying very hard to say imprisoned people and incarcerated people because I feel like that is more... Um, it it's It leans more to their humanity rather than... It's kind of like how we say enslaved people versus slaves um, is the way that I was taught in my women's studies class. Oh, my God. I can literally hear when I'm squishing my eye. <laughs> it's picking that up. Yeah. Or is that just, like, in your brain? It might just be in my brain, but I don't know. (laughs) I think you have the brain cell today. So, according to Wikipedia, the ability to have someone imprisoned or killed served as a signifier of who in society possessed power or authority over others. And then I put, like, a thousand dot, 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 dots in my notes, and I was like, I think some people in our society still feel this way. Because I just think of the way that, like, cops treat people, just take people to jail out of spite and stuff, and I'm like... I don't really think much has changed in the who possesses power situation that they're saying. Because I think back then it was like noble people and like people of the court could send you to jail. Now we don't have that, but we have cops. (laughs) This is like a serious episode and I just, I'm so slap happy over here. Like I don't know what's going on. (laughs) I thought, I think we chatted this, chatted about this previously that I was like, Oh, great. Like, I'm coming on for a very serious episode my first time, and it's very hard for us to be serious. Yeah. But, like, I think sometimes you need to have a little bit of lightheartedness in in stuff like this. I'm going to pop my neck. Ooh, that was good. I feel like I just look like Horace on TikTok. Are you not on that part of TikTok right now? Where there's, like, the little man dancing? Oh, that's what his name is? I was, like, who the f- I, I was thinking of, like, the Egyptian god Horus, 
was like, Horace is on TikTok now? Wait, did we talk about that in the Illuminati episode? I think the we talked Horace. Why is everything coming full circle? So crazy. Wow. Okay. So, in the Middle Ages, imprisoned people would be linked together with chains and forced onto ships to paddle, and this is called galley slavery. So they would literally just be at the bottom of ships, like, rowing the boats, and that would just be their lives. So I'm just imagining, like, your arms are probably, like, noodles. And then... Or would they not be, like, buff as fuck? I mean, yeah, I guess they would be buff, but, like... (laughs) At first... At first you'd be be noodles. noodles. Yeah. Yeah. Imprisoned people were also subject to physical punishment and public humiliation. I didn't want to go into, like, some of the details of this kind of stuff because I didn't want it to be super sad. So I'll just leave it at that. I mean, they had, like, public executions and public shamings and stuff where they'd, like, make you walk in the streets and, like, isn't that where I might be completely wrong? There's a word for it. I don't remember what it was. When they'd, like, make you wear, like, the hat of shame in school. The dunce cap? Yeah. Isn't that, like... Is that a part of, like, like imprisoned children have to wear that or something? Well, no, like, if the way, like, the signaling that this person is in shame. Yeah. Like, drawing attention to it. Why did we do that? I don't know. I always thought it was so stupid. I feel like the dunce cap was, like, a big part of my childhood. Not that I had to wear one, but, like, I feel like I knew what that was as a kid. And I, like, why? Do you, and those hats, like, the dunce caps I feel like were like people made fun of them a lot in cartoons yeah and then the hats with like the pinwheel on top Uh, for the same purpose I don't know if it was for the same purpose but just like the hats with the pinwheels on top you know what I'm talking about yeah I just didn't what are those what is the purpose I think just kids entertainment for the pinwheel one (laughs) like trying to catch some wind they got a breeze going through (laughs) So the pinwheel hat, the dunce cap, electric eels, and quicksand were like very integral parts of my childhood. <laughs> and none of those have been relevant in my life ever. I have encountered quicksand before. What? Where? Like in marshes. What were you doing in a marsh? Like at a campsite. Oh. Yeah. Like they had signs up and... I don't know specifically where it was. I'd have to ask because I don't remember because I was a child. But there were signs that were like, beware of quicksand in this area. Oh, my God. That would have fulfilled my childhood. Like, I don't even know so much. <laughs> I would have been like, fuck yeah. Okay. Back to the, <laughs> the content. Like we going so far off. I know. And we're like, never we're mind. like 20 minutes into this already. <laughs> I'm like, I haven't even gone through the first topic, which is just the history. Okay, in the 17th century, people got tired of seeing public execution. So I'm sorry, I jumped really far from like, I went from the Romans to the Middle Ages to the 17th century, but I just, there's so much that we could talk about. But in the 17th century, people were like getting sick of seeing public executions all the time. I know if you listen to like any true crime podcast or anything like that, you're probably very aware of how back in the day that was very common. Well, everyone knows that was very common, but like, People would go to, like, crime sites or crime scenes and pick up pieces of the crime scene and, like, take it with them. Like, there was this very big fascination with death. It looks like in the 17th century, we kind of had a pivot away from that, thank God. So, 
people were like, we don't want to go see these public executions anymore. And so criminals, they would receive the death penalty over like petty crimes. Like you could, I don't know. Steal an apple. Yeah, literally steal an apple. And they'd be like, public execution. And so people were like, fuck no, we're over this. So jurors would often not find them guilty. Like if they were, you know, in trial and they're like, this person stole an apple, the jurors would be like, oh, they're innocent because they didn't want this poor person to die over an apple. So this made the authorities want to change the way that they approached punishing imprisoned people. So they wanted people to be held responsible for their actions. But if people were like not going to find them guilty of their actions because they didn't want them to murder them, they're like, okay, well, we have to stop murdering people. And this is what led to mass incarceration and increased prison labor as we know it today. I have to talk with my hands when I'm doing this, especially when I'm alone. I'm like. (laughs) It's another moment where you should have the twitch going. Because you're like. (laughs) I'm like composing an orchestra. (laughs) Okay. Mass incarcerations and increased prison labor inspired two prison reform movements, which are still kind of the thought process of today. So the first one is the deterrent movement. And this perspective believes that if prison is awful and scary and full of hard hard labor, then it will deter people from breaking laws because they don't want to go to prison and be in like that awful situation. Which is, I feel like, kind of what we have going on right now. (laughs) Like, it's pretty bad in there. The other reform movement is Reformation. So this perspective is based in Christianity and the idea of repenting and asking for forgiveness for your sins. So if prison is a place of rehabilitation and teaches people to be better, then it will make for model citizens when they are released and overall people will be happier. So this was all like started in that 17th century and it's still kind of the, the dominant perspectives of today. Although I don't know if um, the prison reform one is necessarily, like, religious-based anymore. Like, I think that's kind of just, like, a general... It's more leaning into education now, I think, giving the opportunity to do... um, I think one of the ones I read was, like, book reports, like, determining how many books you read, and then you have to do, like, an insightful book report. It's also giving them education and um, takes, like, X amount of years off their sentence for each one that they do. I love that. I don't know the source on it, though. So yeah, like, that's okay. okay. That was just one of the things that just general I saw. knowledge, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what I'm taking from all of this history, though, is that, like, prison has always been fucked up. The same problems that have been the problems from the beginning are kind of the same problems now. So, like, maybe prison isn't really the way to go. But I don't know what the other options are. I'm sure there are some, but, yeah. We at least know that it is not effective here in the States. Because I know, like... Sweden and Norway, like, I know, like, people shit on them for, like, not being really prisons, but they have, like, the lowest crime rates. Yeah. They have, like, fancy dorms and stuff. Yeah. I think... it's true rehabilitation. Yeah. It's like they put them in... That's so crazy. Because, so I was talking... This is kind of, like, a tangent, but I was talking to my therapist about Ziggy and how when I moved out with Ziggy by myself, he was really bad, but... It was because he was used to living in a house that was chaotic. Like, my thought process was like, oh, I'm getting him out of a chaotic household with, like, ten other pets, a bunch of people, dysfunctional family, and he's going to be better. 
But like putting him in like a safe and calm environment really just stressed him out more because he was more comfortable with chaos. And then when he moved back into the house he was originally, he was like better. He gained his weight back and stuff. So it's interesting. I guess in Sweden and Norway, if their rehab facilities are so good, they maybe aren't having these like crazy chaotic crimes or these people aren't raised in crazy chaotic homes. So maybe putting them in that like nice sterile rehab facility isn't quite as jarring but I think about the people here in the U.S. in the way that people live here if we put them in something like that they'd be like what the fuck like it's almost like a shock even though it's a good shock it's like a shock to your system because it's so not what you're used to I think I was watching Atlanta that show Mm -hmm. um which I actually haven't watched I was watching like the newest season with someone who like was already like an avid watcher of the show and so I just was watching it with them And, like, the rapper on the show gets, like, arrested in, like, Sweden or somewhere like that. And he's like, I kind of don't want to (laughs) go. And they, like, asked him what he wanted to eat. And he had, like, soda and, like, a really, like, fancy meal. And he was like, they came and told him that he could be released. And he was like, can I wait till my food's here, though? (laughs) And I was like, that's kind of nice. So that was the end of the history section. So now I just want to throw in some, like, general facts that I have before we jump into, like, the specific topics. So, according to Wikipedia, the United States has the largest prison population in the world and the highest per capita incarceration rate. Over the last 40 years, the prison population in the U.S. has grown dramatically. And honestly, not really for any good reason. Like, we just keep incarcerating people, but it's not changing. I thought it's been... From like the since the seventies with the war on drugs, that they were focusing a lot on drug related um, offenses and making sure people got the maximum sentence for that, and that like affected the exponential increase. Yeah, I saw a lot of that too. Oh, the war on drugs is so stupid. Um, I think I actually have <laughs> the some... drugs are winning. <laughs> yeah, so like. I have this stat. It says it cost taxpayers almost $87 billion in 2015 to, like, operate prisons, essentially, for roughly the same level of public safety achieved in 1978 for $5.5 billion. So we're putting people in prison, paying for people to be in prison, and, like, the quality of life hasn't really changed um, when it comes to crimes. And I got that from the Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah, so... Going off of the war war on drugs, according to the sentencing project, at the federal level, imprisoned people with drug convictions make up half of the prison population, and most of these imprisoned people are not high-level criminals in the drug trade, and most of them have no prior offenses. So people are just getting arrested for drugs, getting the maximum sentencing for nothing, kind of, pretty much. They're saying it's the war on drugs, but they're just getting the people that are, like, using drugs yeah not distributors or smugglers getting it into the country or anything like right that. or like maybe like very low level like oh i sell like an ounce like of the weed. neighborhood yeah dealer. <laughs> yeah stuff like that so it's it, we're just putting people in jail for pretty much no reason and i feel like a lot of that was just to i'm theorizing here to meet whatever quotas that they thought they needed to hit quotas not- are so fucking stupid it's like, I get that they're like, oh, if these many people are doing drugs, we need to arrest amount, this amount of people to say that we're arresting people doing drugs. But it's like, why? Yeah. So they can feel like they're doing something? What's the state? Is it Oregon that, like, 
has decriminalized all drugs for like a harm reduction method, or is it Colorado? Um, I feel like it's Oregon. I don't remember off the top of my head. I know what you're talking about, though, where they legalized to an extent like heroin. Yeah, pretty much. I think it's like pretty much everything. I could be wrong. Let me look that up. Yeah, and they're they're tr- doing it to provide um, like so people aren't getting as many diseases and dying from infections and stuff. I think was yeah, it's Oregon. Yeah, it says they decriminalize small amounts of all hard drugs and expand treatment. So like they're expanding treatment and rehab centers and legalizing because if you're arresting people that are doing drugs all the time, like you're putting them into this cycle of like prison, drug use, prison, drug use, and not really giving them the chance to get off the drugs, which is the whole point of having a quote war on drugs. Yeah, and then prison, everyone does fucking drugs in prison, so, like, yes. what the hell are you doing? You're not helping anything here. And then the staff, like, are bringing in the drugs. It's a whole, whole yeah. fucking mess. So much fucking corruption and everything. I, like, kind of, I think I have a small section on corruption, but I feel like all the topics that I talked about, there's, like, an air of corruption within the staff just kind of mentioned in it. So it's, like, I, I mean... We all know how corrupt it is. But, okay, one in seven people are serving life with parole, life without parole, or virtual life, which is 50 years or more, according to the sentencing project. So that's crazy, like one in seven people in jail. Or is that just one in seven people? I think it's people in jail. I would say one in seven would be a very high amount for just the general population. I think think there's like 2.2 million people imprisoned at any time in the States, so... Probably. (laughs) The private companies of today that run prison facilities for the federal government house 8% of the U.S. prison population, which is rising. It's just weird. It's weird to me that, like, we have private for-profit prisons. I should have looked into this, but I just want to know when that started. Like, someone was like, you know what? I'm just going to make my own prison. Like, fuck these, like, state prisons. I'm just going to make my own. Like, that's so weird. What I think of that is, like, maybe high-end prisons for, like, rich fucking people that, like, they have fucking tennis courts and shit. That's the only thing that I could think of. And I think I saw... (laughs) I think I saw somewhere that private prisons typically take the non-violent types of crimes and stuff because they don't want to hire staff to, like, maximum security staff to keep violent people in check. So, like, embezzlement and stuff like that? Yeah. Like, white-collar crime? Yeah, or even just, like, minor drug offenses, like, just possession and stuff like that. Things that just aren't violent that they wouldn't have to really worry about having extra staff on hand for. And I think that's what makes it easier for them to be, like, a for-profit. I was going to have something to add to that, and then I was distracted by your face. Um, prison. Private prison. I was going to say a specific <laughs> topic is on prison. Um, yeah, that you wouldn't have to pay for, um, hazard, hazardous conditions for the workers. Right. Or high-risk situations. Okay, now we have reached inside the prison, and we're going to talk about prison labor. There was something that I watched a long time ago, or something that I read, and a certain type of peanut butter that I was buying was made with prison labor. So then instead, I ended up buying, like, the $6 can of, like, organic peanut butter for, like, the longest time to avoid buying whatever brand it was. 
I want to say it's either Jif or like Peter Pan. One of the two use prison labor. Okay, but so do you think prison labor is bad? Because after I was reading about it, I was like, I feel like it's 50-50. Yeah, because I there's, depending on what it is, if you take it, it can help reduce stuff off your sentence and also can get them more acquainted to what it would be like when they get out having a job. Right. Once again, the conditions that they're under, you know, very little pay. They get paid like 23 cents an hour or something like that. Yeah, there's like a really low range. And it all goes towards whatever stuff the prison still needs anyway. It's all, it's, they're not actually keeping anything. Right. Is what, like they can't even buy stuff at whatever the... The commissary. Commissary, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I have some information about that. So first, I just wanted to mention that the current prison labor situation is the product of the slavery era. So according to Wikipedia, penal labor in the United States is explicitly allowed by the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which states, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So when the 13th Amendment happened, this is when black codes were enacted by politicians. Basically laws that were like, they were just the simplest things that if a black person was doing it, they'd be like, oh, jail. But like if a white person did it, they would be fine. So many formerly enslaved people were imprisoned for ridiculous charges, ultimately forcing them back into a legal form of slave slave labor. And it was this kind of loophole. I mean, it was really crazy stuff. I was reading, it was like, if they don't have housing, like if they're in the middle of trying to find housing, like, oh, you're going to jail because you don't have a home. But it's like, well, let me find one first. Just weird stuff like that. And even like more simple things than that. Like maybe even being like between jobs or like... Fuck you for being poor. Jail. Yeah, pretty much. And it's like they just became free. Give them a second. You know what I mean? So it was just another way for them to basically put them back into a form of slavery. So... I also saw this stat, which was crazy. Today, black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men and Latinos are 2.5 times as likely. For a black man in their 30s, one in every 12 is in prison or jail on any given day. Isn't that fucking crazy? That was from the sentencing project. That, that number, one in 12, is just... Yeah, I don't know. That's just a crazy number. Really stuck out to me. So I just thought I would put that in there. So today... Prison labor is a multi-billion dollar industry with incarcerated people doing everything from building office furniture and making military equipment to staffing call centers and doing 3D modeling. So I got that from NPR. They're doing crazy shit. Like, so much stuff. There is one of them that you had listed in the notes, and I was like, okay, but how the hell are they making that? Uh, It was like the companies that use... Prison labor. I remember being like, what the fuck are they making for Starbucks? Maybe the staffing call centers? I don't know. Okay. I was just thinking, like, they wouldn't be producing food or, like, coffee grinds or anything, I don't think. Maybe, like, the... Plastic molding? Cups and stuff. But there was a few... When we when we get there, that I was like, what the fuck are they doing for that company? Yeah. Studies have shown that imprisoned people who work while they are in prison are less likely to reoffend after they're released for up to 12 years. So I thought that was weird. They're like, for up to 12 years, like after the 12-year mark, going to jail. 
Um, <laughs> but Fuck mo- you, jail. Right. Most prison jobs are optional and can reduce your sentence, but you don't get days off. And there are some jobs that are not optional, and if people refuse to work them, then they might be put into solitary confinement. They and- use that for everything, though. I know. There was one article I was reading that they were interviewing a previously imprisoned person, and they were saying, like, as soon as they got into prison, they were diagnosed with HIV, like, as soon as they got there. And they had taken a job working in the kitchen, and they had to cook every day. And they didn't have, like, a day off. And some days they would be super sick. Obviously, they have HIV, and they still couldn't get days off. If they took a day off, they'd end up in, like, solitary. Which you're already sick, and, like, going in there is just going to compound that. According to the Bureau of Justice Assistance, under the Prison Industry Enhancement Certification Program, which is PIECP, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, God, I can't talk, certifies that local or state prison industry programs meet all the necessary requirements to be exempt from federal restrictions on imprisoned people made goods in interstate commerce. The program places imprisoned peoples in realistic work environments, pays them prevailing wages, and gives them a chance to develop marketable skills that will increase their potential for rehabilitation and meaningful employment on release. If that was practical and doing it exactly that way, I'd be all for it for all the prison jobs. I agree. And I don't think that everything is a part of the PIECP program, too. That's like the prison jobs aren't all in that program. But in theory, it sounds really nice, but it doesn't come to fruition when executed. I didn't know that. So this program legalizes the transportation of prison made goods across state lines. I didn't really understand like why that was a only thing I can think of about the legalization of transportation is that there's a lot of laws and regulations between states and what it just might be extra red tape over prison goods. Yeah. Like what if there's a knife in your peanut butter? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I never fucking understood this. When they'd be like, check your children's candy. And then they're like, I found a saw blade in my Hershey's bar. Did that happen? I feel like that was always something that was talked about, but I, I never actually heard anything come of it. I feel like there was an episode, it might have been Morbid, Morbid podcast, where like around Halloween they did an episode on that. Or it, might, it was either Morbid, Crime Junkies, or And That's Why We Drink. Those are like my three like crime shows, so I, I get them mixed up. I can't remember who did what. But I think they like researched that, and there was like one specific instance where somebody tampered with candy and then it was like it just blew up to this like nationwide thing where everyone was like oh my god there was one murder where a dad took you know those pixie sticks they're yeah. so good he like took them like the big ones you know the like foot long ones you can get at, like baseball games and he like cut it open and like put it was like cyanide or something crazy in it and then gave it to his kids because he wanted to cash in on the insurance. He gave it to his child and like a friend, like someone that wasn't even his child that he had no insurance policy on, but he just gave it to both of them and they ate it. I think they both died or maybe one of them died and the other one was like really sick or something. And I think that was the case that everyone was like, what the fuck? Did he get the money? 
No, he got arrested. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did they figure it out before then? Anytime someone kills for insurance money, they get fucking busted because it's so fucking obvious. It makes me so mad. Who would fuck have an insurance policy on their kids? My dad. <laughs> but, like, we're... <laughs> We're not, like, a typical family. We're a cool family. No, just kidding. Um, We all die in my family. <laughs> all my siblings are dead. I'm an only child now. So I don't really... There's probably a fat insurance policy on me. <laughs> Damn. I mean, for real. Like, this family, we need it. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's normal. I think I think what happened, though, is he took a policy out on his kid and then did this. Fucking amateurs. Right. You gotta plan so right. far in advance. Like, if you're thinking of killing your child one day, like, long haul it. Like, start from the beginning. <laughs> Get the policy when they're in the belly. I don't know. If they make it that far. Right. Okay, so that program. <laughs> I was gonna say somewhat on the same topic of, like, stuff and candy. Who the fuck is putting drugs for free in candy? Literally, my boss and I were just talking about this. Because we were like... Who would do that? Like, you want to take your drugs. Like, the only way that would ever make sense is if you're, like, hanging out with those kids. Because who would put, like, a drop of acid in candy, give it to the child, let them go away, and then just never think of it? Like, they're like, oh, I bet that child's tripping balls. Like, wouldn't you want to see it? Like, what would be the point? Like, if you were going to do that, like, (laughs) hypothetically For your own entertainment. (laughs) Like, literally, what's the reason? Like... No, save your drugs. Drugs are expensive. For real. Like, there was, I don't know, it was in the recent area, like, a fucking Arby's, like, people were giving out, no, it was a Red Robin. They were giving out, like, Rice Krispies that were laced. For free? Yeah. Like, and the guy put, like, his calling card, like, in it. Like, a fucking idiot. Oh, my God. (laughs) So stupid. It's like, are you even chill with this person? Was that local? Yeah, I was in North Carolina. What? <laughs> Which Red Robin? The one by your house? I don't you know. <laughs> it was, it's been on the news like three times. I'm like, I want to go. <laughs> what the heck? That's so it funny. Was, they showed a picture of it. It was like, damn, that looked good. It was like Rainbow Rice Krispies. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not really a fan of the Rainbow Rice Krispies. I won't lie. Well, no, it was like the marshmallow in it was rainbow is what made it. Ooh. Multicolor. It looked like... A cotton candy thing. I had to hit up that red robin. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. D8 is legal in North Carolina. Okay, so back to this program. So supposedly it allows imprisoned people to save money to pay for things like victim compensation, tax deductions, family support. Like if you're the main breadwinner and you're in jail and now your family's struggling, you, I guess, can send like, what, $2 back to them a week? Because that's all you're making. And Reuben board at the prison. What the... <laughs> right, I know. You know fucking wor- It's like college, but worse. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you gotta fucking... They nickel and dime you for fucking everything. Oh my god. Obviously much, much worse, but I'm saying like the way they set up all the... Like, you gotta pay for a fucking meal plan. You have to pay for where you're living. You have to pay for like every fucking material you gotta pay to take a shit. 
Like, it's, <laughs> it's so much. Yes. Like, I think somewhere in here I, w- I wrote about it, but they have to pay for, like, their medical visits and which, like, we all have to pay. But you... I thought the state did that shit, though. Like, they're supposed to do that. Yeah. Because, like, if you can't... Well, the, so the reason that they'd have this is so that, like, they can essentially make the workers pay for it for themselves. So they don't really have to go out of pocket for it. So it's like, what the fuck are we paying for? Like, what are the taxpayers paying for? Where's... Like, I want to see... A P&L. I want to see the profits and losses. Like, lay it out for me. Because it's see not making sense. See the fucking EBITDA right now. Yes. Where's the EBITDA? <laughs> Where are my accounting and finance majors at? <laughs> but yeah, it's like ridiculous. And they have to pay. I think I also read about it later, but I'm just getting ahead of myself. But like all of the things in the commissary are inflated. All the pricing of things. So like they might spend a whole week's salary on like a stick of deodorant. Which is just crazy. I think you can get to this later about women in prison. Don't they have to buy their own fucking menstrual products? I didn't, like, find anything about that because I didn't even think to look that up, but probably. Uh-huh. Because I feel like in Orange is the New Black, which I know isn't, like, reality, but, like, I think they are, have been praised for being pretty relatively similar to what the life in prison is like. They Don't they have, like, people – there's an episode or something where, like, they're just, like, free bleeding and stuff. I know I've, like, read some stuff about women in jail just, like, they just don't have, they can't afford products, so they're just, like, bleeding. Or the, I bet if the government provides them with stuff, it's, like, one pad, and then they have to, like, make it last for, like, a week. I'd rather just free bleed. Yeah. I think at that point. I do free bleed sometimes. (laughs) I have no idea. Can you shower daily? I have no idea. Maybe? Because, I mean, if anything, just, like, wipe up in the sink. I think showering would be, like, the only thing I would enjoy. But even then, you're vulnerable. Yeah. Well, I don't mind an audience. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was like, that's the one place you would like. (laughs) I'm not saying I would enjoy prison because, like, it's terrible and, like, really sad. And I act actually, like, my worst fear or one of them. I have a lot of worst fears. Drowning, prison, whatever. But I think I would, I think I would manage. I would probably have, like, a prison daddy. Yeah, I think that's the only way I'd get by. Like, I'd I'd want to be like, I'll shrink a bitch, but I'm <laughs> I'm like under a hundred pounds, so I don't know how far I'd get. But you're kind of scary. Like, I think you could just kind of like hype it up. Like, you wouldn't have to actually do anything. You could just be like that girl that like hisses at people in the corner, and people would be like, "Oh, don't fuck with her." <laughs> I I've always told myself if I ever get into like a fucking fight, I'm just ripping and biting and screaming. Oh, yeah. You just got to go, like, full barbaric mode. Like, I'm pulling hair. Like, I'm... I'm getting on, like, all fours, just hysterically screaming, like, like a cat when they try to make themselves look bigger. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I think I would just go apeshit. I've never been in a fight, but I have a lot of, like, pent-up stuff. Oh, yeah, I know. Like, run one wrong turn and, like, I'm just gonna fucking kill someone on accident. Like... For legal purposes, this This is is a a joke. joke. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like, you know, just some poor fucker's gonna get it one day. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. I feel like with you, though, you're... So Eli is the type of person that's, like, when... When she's, like, 50, she's gonna be in, like, a satin robe in, like, a castle, and there's gonna be, like, a thunderstorm, and she's gonna be, like... My husband is mysteriously missing. So I'm just painting a picture for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever could he go? (laughs) Okay. 
Prison insourcing has grown in popularity over the years, especially as a replacement to outsourcing work to other countries. So there's a tax credit for employers who hire imprisoned people called the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, and the credit grants employers $2,400 for every work release employed imprisoned people. Person. Imprisoned person. People. The following companies are big on prison insourcing. So Whole Foods, McDonald's, Target, IBM, Texas Instruments, Boeing, Nordstrom, Intel, Walmart, Victoria's Secret, RMark, AT&T, BP, Starbucks, Microsoft, Nike, Honda. My brain was almost about to say Hikey. Nike, Honda, Macy's, and Sprint. And I think I saw on um, NPR that AT&T has claimed that they do not use prison insourcing. <laughs> it so, like it hurt. Yeah, I was like, am I, I going to throw up? <laughs> AT&T, damn. <sighs> yeah, but so I guess AT&T was like, that's not true. So... It's possible that some of these companies don't, but that was a list that I saw. That might be why um, all the fucking Boeing airplanes malfunction and kill people. <laughs> Is that true? The, like, the Boeing 77, I think, was the one that had a bunch of crashes. Okay, one of the Boeing airplanes um, got recalled after, like, three crashes. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I don't, like, watch the news and stuff because... Oh, this was a couple, like... I remember hearing about, like, something with boing. Boing! (laughs) Why am I so giddy today? Okay. According to prisonpolicy.org, so I got a lot of information from prisonpolicy.org, only about 5,000 people in prison, which is less than 1% of imprisoned people in the U.S., are employed by private companies through the federal PIECP program, which requires them to pay at least minimum wage before deductions. A larger portion work for state-owned correctional industries, quote, which pay much less, but this still only represents about 6% of people incarcerated in state prisons. Okay, so they say before deductions. What, are they, like, regular deductions, or are they... The deductions are, like, if they have to pay victim compensation, the room and board, or if they have, like medical issues it's just stuff that the prison takes out of it so it's like for this particular program they might get minimum wage and then by the time all the deductions are taken out they'll probably have like a dollar but some prison work that's not in this program i i don't think they're required to pay minimum wage i was just thinking like oh yeah we pay like minimum wage but then they're left with 25 cents still yeah pretty much and then if it's like a private prison and it's a for-profit then they just take some of the money that they earn. They just take it, and it's like goes towards their profits. Aside from that, prison policy did find in a 2017 study that on average, incarcerated people earn between $0.86 cents and $3.45 per day for the most common prison jobs. In at least five states, those jobs pay nothing. So some states, they have to do prison work, but they don't get paid. And then according to Wikipedia, as of 2021, so that last study was 2017, but as of 2021, imprisoned people in federal prisons earned between 23 cents and $1.15 per hour. A lot of the money that imprisoned people make is taken for profit. Finally, on prison labor, imprisoned people receive very little rights and protections as well. If they refuse to work, they face disciplinary actions. Imprisoned people are also required to use their wages to pay for necessities like medical visits and hygiene items, so they basically pay for prison themselves. So that's what I was talking about earlier. I don't know if you would know this. With 
whatever's coming out of their what they're being paid, does that go towards Social Security and other stuff that would be in a common paycheck? I'm not sure. I don't want to say one way or the other. I'm not 100% sure. Next, I want to talk about prison food. So people in prison and jail are likely to experience high rates of diabetes, heart disease, mental health issues, and illnesses related to foodborne pathogens. And I got this from an article called, um, from a site called In These Times. I know my tummy would be fucked up. It already is. Yeah. Um, Food from the prison commissary includes things like instant coffee, instant soup noodles, chips, honey buns, cookies, canned foods, things of that nature. Basically, I just picture it as like going into the gas station and getting snacks. But if you've been to prison, just let me know. But that's kind of what I'm picturing. It's just like a bunch of junk food, like a vending machine, essentially, but a store. Fucking love honey buns. I can't remember the last time I had a honey bun, but for some reason, whenever I see honey buns, I think of prison. (laughs) I don't know why. Like, (laughs) I must have watched like a show or something where they were eating honey buns in prison, but like, (laughs) I always think of honey buns in prison. Baby slapping. The food in prison that's served to all of the imprisoned people, so not just, like, commissary food, but the food that they eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't even know if they get breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or if it's, like, two meals a day or what, but um, it's high in sodium and sugar, typically carb-heavy and extremely processed. Some previously incarcerated people claim that they were served food that was intended for livestock, and they describe it as, like, pig slop. There was some guy that he prided himself on having the lowest cost on prison food and it was like 23 cents per meal oh is my what god it came out to. and he like prided himself on that i'm just picturing like oatmeal like just oatmeal all the time just mushy grains and oats and stuff it's mainly just filler food to keep people held over but typically all of this food has little to no nutritional value so people start gaining weight while remaining hungry Apparently, it's not uncommon for food to be served spoiled or infested with bugs. And food in the commissary is one of the main ways that people actually feed themselves until they're full. So a common problem in prison is that people constantly aren't full. They don't, they never feel full. And that's, so they're just constantly hungry. But not everyone has commissary money. And the prices in the commissary are inflated, like we mentioned earlier. And also just in comparison to what they're earning... If you have people on the outside, I know lots of times people get money wired into them to be able to eat out of the commissary. Yeah, people will send commissary money, but not everyone has that. So yeah. not everyone gets to eat that. But even then, if you are if you have commissary money and you're eating that, you're still just eating like shit food. Yeah. So it's just this constant junk food. Whenever I have like a day or a week where I just eat really shitty junk food for a while, I feel absolutely terrible. So I can't even imagine what it's like. According to In These Times, people convicted of drug-related felonies, amongst other specific charges, are banned from receiving SNAP benefits, which is food stamps if you're not familiar, along with other food benefits. I think this is a state-by-state thing, though, because I think I saw California actually changed that. They recently changed that so people can be eligible, but I think it is a state-by-state situation, which is really messed up because I was reading a lot of um, people who end up in prison typically have food insecurity issues prior to going into prison. And so this just kind of perpetuates the issue. And then when they get out, they still have a really unhealthy relationship with food. So it's really sad. It's like, you should be helping them. I I don't understand why that would affect them not being able to have food. I guess it's more so the government doesn't want to continue to help them. Yeah. 
Food in solitary confinement is even worse. So in some places in prison, people are served something called neutral loaf, which is a protein-rich, tasteless concoction that encourages rapid and dramatic weight loss, leading to severe dehydration, gallstones, cardiovascular disease, and tooth loss from malnutrition. I don't think that they like made that with the intention to have people have those symptoms, but whatever's in it leads to those symptoms, essentially. I'm just picturing, like, a piece of meatloaf that's, like, really gross and dry or something. Yeah, like some sort of, like, cardboard. Or, like, a granola bar that's, like, really gross. Previously imprisoned people typically struggle with binging and hoarding when they return to the civilized world. Um, I think that comes from, like, if people who don't have commissary money consistently like if they get it they usually hoard it also i saw somewhere too that a lot of prisons don't let people go you can only go to the commissary like once every two weeks so people will spend all their money and like stock up on stuff and like make it last over those two weeks so it just encourages unhealthy eating behavior okay we're gonna transition from food into violence and sexual assault so if you would like to skip ahead and you don't want to hear I mean, I don't think anybody wants to hear about sexual assault and violence, but if that's something that would trigger you, I would just, you know, skip ahead maybe a couple of minutes because I didn't do too much on this because I don't like to give attention to these kinds of things because I don't want to bring it into my consciousness too much. But we're going to talk about it because it's important. So obviously violence and sexual assault are often not reported in prisons due to fear of retaliation. So we do have some reports, um, but these numbers don't accurately reflect anything really just because we know that stuff happens that people aren't reporting. So based on what has been reported, 25% of imprisoned peoples are victimized by violence each year and 4 to 5% experience sexual assault and 1 to 2% are R-word. So a lot of a different R-word. When yeah, there's two R-words. So I'm just going to say, I already told you guys to skip ahead, but I'm going to say the R-word, it's raped. So 1 to 2% are raped. And rates of physical assault for male imprisoned peoples are more than 18 times higher than the men in the regular population. And for women, it's more than 27 times higher. More than 90% of incarcerated women experience sexual assault or physical trauma before their incarceration. And studies have shown that exposure to trauma increases the likelihood of perpetuating a crime. How much you've been through? Oh my god, I wish that was on camera. The way she just looked at me. I'm, you know what? You're like, everyone in my family's died. <laughs> I'm the only two left. Guess how much my insurance has cost. I'm an anomaly that I'm not in jail. <laughs> of all the shit that's happened to me. I wouldn't blame you. I'd be like, oh, there she goes. <laughs> there it's about time. she goes. I think everyone in my life would be like, that adds up. Because, okay, not to like toot my own horn, but I feel like a common thing in my life is people are always like, oh my god, I don't know how you've been through so much that you've been through and turned out the way that you are. And I'm like, gag me with a spoon. So I feel like if I did go to jail, people would be like, well, okay. Statistically speaking. <laughs> kind He's of like, you should have been in here a while ago. <laughs> I, yeah, I've been very fortunate. I've, you know, I've had some hiccups through my life, but like, for the most part, like, I've never been pulled over. I did get in trouble on a military base with the military police. But that's... A I was just like, when the fuck were you on a military base with, like, military <laughs> police? I was like, when was this? And then you said that. I was like, oh, yeah, that was a while ago. 
Yeah, no, that's another story for another time. I feel like I should do an episode where I talk about my own scandals that have happened in my life. (laughs) But yeah, so I have not been to jail, knock on wood. But like I said, a lot of incarcerated women who are in jail have been exposed to trauma. And I'm sure it's the same for men too. In the past 40 years, the number of incarcerated women in the U.S. has increased by more than 700%, double the growth rate for incarcerated men, according to the Sentencing Project. In 2019, African-American women were imprisoned at a rate of 1.7 times greater than white women, and African-American girls are three times more likely than white girls to be incarcerated. Native girls are more than four times as likely. Between 2013 and 2018, the number of reports of sexual abuse in prisons and jails nationwide more than doubled from approximately 13,500 to 28,000, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, though this also just might be attributed to better reporting measures. I think the next bullet point I have is about like a new way that people can report sexual assault and rape in prison, and um, so it's... I don't think we can necessarily say that there's more instances of it happening, like it's getting worse. It's We just might be knowing more about it now. But also with more people in prison, you're going to have more cases of it. Yeah. And that was from theappeal.org. So the first federal legislation to curb sexual assault in prisons was the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA. However, according to the appeal, often when people report PREA complaints, they're deemed false or baseless by prison administrations. So they do have this avenue to report, but are often not taken seriously. Yeah, because they're the ones doing it. Yep. Yeah. Come tell us who who in our group is fucking with you guys. Oh, okay. Ignored. That's a lot of why people don't report, too, because it's like... The people that they would report it to are the people who are doing it. committing the acts on them. Yeah. Reporting rape in prison can get you more time on your sentence or time in solitary confinement. And they can also limit your phone calls to family, commissary access, visitation schedules, work programs, library access, mental health resources, and more. It's easier for things like this to occur also in work release programs because they're off-site. And, like, they'll be in cars or, like, in private places with the um, imprisoned people. And so it's harder for them to have any, like, I guess, proof of it happening. But this was all from, um, I believe this was also from theappeal.org, where they had, like, an interview of previously imprisoned women talking about, like, why they didn't come forward. Because they were like, if I came forward, I'd have more time added or I'd be put in the hole, which is solitary confinement. Or, like, I wouldn't be able to call my family, which is just really sad. Um, So it's easy for guards to kind of make up their own storyline, say you broke a rule. Corruption in prison staff is very common. So many types of corruption include violence, theft, trafficking in contraband into the prison facilities, embezzlement, and misuse of authority. And that's a very large blanket statement. Okay, we're transitioning into physical and mental illness. So according to In These Times, formerly imprisoned Taylor Nouvelle states that women she was incarcerated with, including herself, showed signs of anorexia and bulimia. Many often hoarded food and drank coffee all day to suppress their appetites. Mainly, she was referring to the food conditions there. So obviously we know that you are what you eat, so bad food diet is going to affect you physically and mentally. She also said that it's not uncommon for women to gain roughly 70 pounds while incarcerated and that they refer to the bellies of women who gain weight as tray babies, like lunch trays. 
Those are your tray babies. I was wondering when I was reading through that, I was like, what the fuck is a tray baby, yeah. like, referring to? No, it's, like, from your shitty lunch tray food that you have to eat. Great. Rates of infectious disease, notably HIV and AIDS and tuberculosis, are much higher in prisons than in the rest of the population in most countries, according to penalreform.org. And tuberculosis, I didn't realize, was still, like, rampant. I know I, when I worked at the daycare, I had to get a tuberculosis test to see if I had it. But what even is it? Do you know? I'm not the person to ask. I don't know. I feel like you know random things. I did know that um, you have a 50% higher chance of dying in prison due to the conditions and environment who you're there with than on the outside. And I think like Alabama, one of the Alabama prisons or maybe it was Louisiana is considered like the deadliest prison in the world because how many people die there. Yeah. Alabama prisons are really bad. Louisiana probably is really bad too. So imprisoned people are often ignored when it comes to their health. A woman in Texas told staff that she was having contractions. Being pregnant in prison sounds like the most terrifying thing ever because people not only can hurt you, but they can hurt your baby. But she told staff that she was having contractions. They were like, oh, you're fine. You're not having contractions. She ended up having her baby in a cell in the prison called the cage rather than being transported to a hospital. So that's terrifying. So I'm assuming even after she was like, it's coming out, they were like, nah. Or they didn't have time to move her at that point. I don't know. I don't have the details further than that. I guess she just was Pop like... and squat. Yeah, she was like, I'm having a baby right now. There was an imprisoned man in Illinois, and he was ignored um, by staff. He was complaining about blisters that he had on his feet that just kept getting worse and worse, and he ended up having his leg amputated. Probably from diabetes. Yeah, probably from diabetes, from the food, or like, I don't know, he probably got like gangrene and the blisters. But so many people who have reached out to staff about mental illness have completed suicide. A lot of people in jail um, complete suicide. Many incarcerated people also report having symptoms of PTSD just from being in prison in general, as well as witnessing the dismissal of imprisoned people's needs and witnessing violence. So Many imprisoned people are prone to experiencing anxiety, depression, avoidance, hypersensitivity, hypervigilance, suicidality, and flashbacks. Mental health care in prisons is essentially non-existent. Not everyone receives their medication and especially not their therapy. It's really sad because we closed down so many mental health facilities. And we did that because they weren't being treated well in the facilities, like, back in the day. When was this, like, the 80s and 90s when they, like... Like, a sane asylum? Yeah. But I feel like we could re rebrand that. Like, we yeah. could have those kinds... Of, and we do, but they're, now, like, the really expensive ones. Inpatient therapy. Yeah. I just think of, like, my brother and my dad was not a doctor or a therapist or equipped to take care of someone that is severely mentally ill. And I just think about all the people in the world who have like children or family members that they have to take care of. And it's really, it takes a lot out of you. And I think of the people who don't have, you know, mentally unwell people who don't have family to take care of them and they wind up homeless or like in really bad situations or in jail because they weren't receiving the proper care that they needed. Um, So I know a lot of homeless people are mentally unwell because when they close down the, quote, insane asylums, they basically just, like, sit these people on their way into the streets. I was talking to someone. He's older. He's, like, late 30s. And he was telling me how, like, when he was a kid, homeless people were just people who kind of, like, fell down on their luck. 
like we're just, you know, in between situations, like had a rough time or something. And like nowadays it's more mentally ill people or like a lot of veterans and stuff. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that change in the demographic of homeless people. Isn't there a word that we say now instead of homeless people? Like a more sensitive word? People without homes? Shit. I have no idea if it's realistic or not. I think someone was making fun of whatever the new word was, but it was like uninclined to a home or something like that. Yeah. No, it really is something weird like that. Uh, what is it? Because I, I follow a lot of the mutual aid things in Charlotte, and they there's like an infographic, of course, because that's how the world works now, where it was saying what the politically correct way of referring to homeless people is. People without housing. People without housing. Right. So it's the same way I say like imprisoned people, enslaved people, people without housing. So... I do not mean any offense to anybody if I've been saying homeless people. We will say people without housing. But yeah, so many people were literally sent out into the streets when we closed down mental hospitals. And a lot of them are either people without homes or incarcerated people. And it's a vicious cycle. And I was reading there's currently a mental health crisis in U.S. prisons, obviously, These people aren't receiving their medication, their treatment. I mean, I don't think anyone's getting, like, therapy or seeing a psychiatrist or anything like that. So I think that probably contributes to the unsafe environment as well. I know. Anytime there's been any natural disasters, they essentially said, fuck it. The guards went out and they left the people there that were imprisoned. That's so... 1800s sounding to me. I know, like, one, it was off of a video, they said that they were in fear that, like, if the guard let someone out, then they were going to get hurt in the process, but eventually they ended up, I forgot which, it was, like, with a hurricane or it was with a fire that they ended up overpowering one of the guards to get the keys and to let more people out just to save them. Yeah, that's really sad. What... What would they even do? Where I mean, like, a genuine question. Where do they take people in that situation? I feel like that's something that they should consider. Yeah, like, they're, I feel like a lot of prisons are not equipped. Just like the Titanic, like, they were not equipped to get rid of that many people at once. Probably the same thing with prisons, is that they do not think of, like, mass evacuations. That's so fucked up. There's still people. Yeah. You're just going to, like, leave them there in a flood and, like, let them drown. So fucked up. So I'll move on to solitary confinement. So according to the Equal Justice Initiative, more than 60,000 people in the U.S. are held in solitary confinement. They're isolated in small cells for 23 hours a day, allowed out only for showers, brief exercise or medical visits, and denied calls or visits from family members. Studies show that people held in long-term solitary confinement suffer from anxiety, paranoia, perceptual disturbances, and deep depression. Nationwide, suicides among people held in isolation account for almost 50% of all prison suicides, even though less than 8% of the prison population is in isolation. So pretty much the majority of people in solitary confinement for extended periods of time are committing suicide or completing suicide if they're able to contribute to that high of a percentage, which is really sad. And I'm just now thinking about it where they're saying they're denied 
calls or visits from family members? Do the family members know they're in solitary? Like, can you imagine calling and being like, hey, I want to speak to so-and-so, and and they're like, oh, you can't. I'd be like, why? Where are they? Would they be obligated to inform them that they're in solitary? That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not sure how that works. Can you imagine, like, going to visit someone, and they're like, they can't come out right now. Efforts to prevent the spread of COVID-19 have increased the use of solitary confinement in prisons as well. It's 420, blaze it. Damn, we've been doing this forever. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a long one. Yeah. So recent studies have shown that solitary confinement shortens your lifespan even after the release. So even if you were just in there, any time in solitary confinement affects your lifespan, apparently, as well as causes irreparable damage to people's brains and personalities because we're not supposed to be alone. We're like tribal animals. Social creatures by nature. The part of the brain that helps with memory has been shown to physically shrink when in solitary confinement, and we also experience social pain, which social pain is the feelings of hurt and distress that come from negative social experiences such as social deprivation, exclusion, rejection, or loss, and this affects the brain the same way that physical pain does, according to prison policy. It makes me think of like those situations where people are held captive for like 15 years at a time, and then they just really can't readjust to society. It's because you literally, your brain has changed. Physical effects of solitary confinement include hypertension, headaches and migraines, profuse sweating, dizziness, heart palpitations, weight loss, digestion, complications, abdominal pain, muscle pain, and stiffness. And mental health effects include exacerbated mental illnesses if they already have one, sensory deprivation, existential crisis, development of mental illness if they don't have one, and self-harm. Even if an imprisoned person does not have a mental health condition going into solitary confinement, it's very possible and likely for them to develop one while they're in solitary. And this is typically characterized by inability to tolerate normal things. I think an example they provided was like, the sound of like toilets flushing, like hearing the plumbing in the walls and stuff will like send them hallucinations and illusions, severe panic attacks, difficulty thinking and concentrating, memory problems, obsessive and harmful thoughts that don't go away, paranoia, impulse control, and delirium. Did you say by chance how like the average time spent in solitary? Like is like just how many in general? I did not. I saw that um the United Nations considers solitary confinement longer than 15 days torture and you can have like effects of solitary confinement within that 15 days but it seems like a lot of people are spending more time than that like some people are in solitary confinement for years at a time or months at a time and especially with covid right now or I guess it might not be as bad as it was when the pandemic first started but they were doing a lot of solitary confinement which I'm like I don't know how that works like how you're solitarily confining everyone in a prison or what that looks like but apparently there was a lot of solitary confinement practice during the pandemic so I'm imagining people were in that for a while I guess I should have looked up like what the average time is I wonder if that's a stat we can find let's see as of the summer of 2019 according to Yale an estimated 55,000 to 62,500 prisoners in the United States were held in isolation for an average of 22 hours a day for 15 days. So it seems like the typical is like the 15 days. Oh, this one says, according to PBS, stays typically start at 30 days but can last indefinitely. I just picture like 
these awful prison guards are like watching people in solitary literally losing their minds and they just think it's funny. I wonder what kind of education you have to have to be a prison guard. Probably not much. The same way you don't need much to be a cop. These dumb asses have no idea what they're doing to people and they just do it because they think it's funny. Or as a power move. Yes, the authority thing we talked about. Stanford prison experiment. That one's scary. Like I said, the United Nations considers solitary confinement longer than 15 days torture, which it literally is based on all the stuff that we've talked about, like what it does to you. Yet the U.S. still uses it a lot. There's been so many studies in the U.S. proving that it's super detrimental to people's health and actually warrants the opposite effect on what we think it will do. We're like, oh, solitary confinement will give you like some time to rethink your actions and like come out a better person, but it actually just exacerbates everything. So it's really interesting that we still do it. It seems like internationally it's pretty discouraged. A lot of places don't do it unless it's like specific circumstances like war crimes and stuff like that. The same with the death penalty. Like a lot of places don't do it unless it's like a very specific crime that you've committed. The U.S. just fucking loves it. Time for the death penalty. I didn't do a ton of notes on this because kind of wanted to talk more about like the morality of it. I do not advocate for the death penalty. I don't know if you want to share how you feel. I, well, when I go into the death row syndrome, it'll explain like how long people are on death row. I feel like depending on the crime, I mean, it have to be like extremely high up there, like with the solitary thing, like mass murder, stuff like that. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, you're gone. For me... I, the, okay, so the the reasoning that I don't believe in the death penalty is just because I feel like we shouldn't be choosing who gets to live and die, and just because they murdered someone, like, it doesn't make us any better if we murder them, but, and then my, like, follow-up argument to that is, like, them having a lifelong sentence in prison is more punishment in my opinion than killing them but then that just goes to show like how terrible our prisons are and the whole point of prison is to rehabilitate people so if we had a better prison situation like if it was like Sweden or Norway or whatever where they actually like help prisoners and they become better people then I don't know how I would feel about the death penalty because then a lifelong sentence in prison isn't really quote, torture, but, like, should we, but then, like, are we torturing them? Like, is that even better than just killing them? Like, it's a whole gray area. I'd like to think, I think that everyone can change. I think that everyone can. It's just a matter of, do they want to change? So then you have those really sadistic murderers or whatever that they just love that they're evil. Yeah, so it's they like, could never possibly go back into society in a functional way. Right. I mean, like, I do think that there are situations where, like, you know, maybe someone was in a gang at a young age and they killed someone and, like, now they're, like, a reformed person and they're like, I don't want to live this lifestyle anymore. I want to be a better person. Like, yeah, but not everybody wants to just be a better person. Some people just like killing and doing fucked up shit. Yeah. So as of 2022, 54 countries retain the capital punishment. However, over 60% of the world's population live in countries where the death penalty exists. Many countries have abolished the death penalty or have kept it only for very specific crimes or circumstances. And the death penalty has obviously been around since ancient civilizations. So, I mean, we've been killing people 
publicly, privately, forever. A study counted death penalty case costs through to the execution and found that the median death penalty case costs $1.26 million. I also think, like, if it wasn't quite so expensive, but, I mean, they have to go through a lot before they kill someone. Yeah. Non-death penalty cases were counted through to the end of incarceration and were found to have a median cost of $740,000. I forgot to cite this, so it's somewhere in my notes. I'll go back and do that. But I also saw different states did their own studies, and they all have, like, you know, different prices for each, but it seemed consistently, like, death row cases, death penalty cases, consistently had higher costs associated with it. So it's just kind of frustrating for taxpayers to have to pay for that situation. Yeah, either way, they're paying for a lot. Yeah, so it has been determined that it is more expensive to execute someone than to just have them serve life in prison, which, like I said, is arguably a worse option based on our current prison conditions. But if we were to have some sort of reform of prison, maybe that would be different. Take it away. Okay. Wait, actually, I have to burp. (laughs) Never mind. Okay, it was a quiet one. So, um, my section, I'm going to be talking about death row syndrome, and specifically I'm reading from a public interest law journal by Amy Smith that was um, published in 2008. Statistics in here are a little bit off, so some things might be different than they are now. Um, The name of this is Not Waving But Drowning, The Anatomy of Death Row Syndrome and Volunteering for Execution. And it opens with a poem. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought and not waving but drowning. And I just highlighted some stuff that I wanted that I think best explains things, and I'm just going to read straight through it. Yeah. More than just a stopover on the way to death, the amount of time individuals spend living within those walls waiting for death is significant. For executions in 2006, more than 12 years had expired on average between the time an individual was told he or she would die at our hands and in the execution itself. Some individuals have been waiting that certain death for more than 20 years. And while our Constitution claims to protect us against cruel and unusual punishment, a complex combination of circumstances and ignorance have somehow lulled us into believing that those we have condemned to death either deserve this pain in exchange for their harms they have caused or that they don't suffer as much as they wait for their executions. Within the international community, other countries have recognized the potential for harm caused by our current system and as a result have refused to extradite back to United States the individuals who might face the death penalty. These countries cite not only the possibility of execution as reasons for refusal, but the waiting process which attends the death as a separate, independent violation of human rights. Can you imagine being told that you're going to be executed and then knowing just for 12 years? Like, you're just living your life for 12 years, like, I'll be executed one day. It goes into it a little bit more about why. It's like mental torture. Yeah, exactly. So, um, trace back to Soaring versus United Kingdom. In that case, the European Court of Human Rights held that extradition to the United States would violate Article 3 of the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. The court found that because the United States, the condemned prisoner, has to endure for many years the conditions on death row and the anguish and mourning tension of living in the ever-present shadow of death, extradition would violate protections against inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. The ever... 
Yeah, it was ever-present shadow of death. Oh, that, like, sent chills down my spine. That was creepy. Um, death row phenomenon... Oh, fuck. <laughs> death row phenomenon is theorized to include three main components. A temporal component, the amount of time between sentencing and execution. A physical component, the condition in which a condemned inmate is held. Um, an experiential component, the meaning of living under the sentence of death. Although no American court to date has adopted a death row phenomenon argument, a similar argument, the pain of delay on death row, was actually the basis for abolishing California's death penalty in 1972. Wow, I didn't realize they didn't have the death penalty for that long. I mean, that was a supporting argument, the basis for abolishing it in 1972. I don't know if that's exactly when it was abolished. I was going to say... This might be a little punchy of me to throw out there, but, like, California has a lot of serial killers. And a lot of some of the worst serial killers we've seen in history, particularly in the 70s. And so maybe the death penalty wouldn't be so bad. People out west are crazy, man. Out in those canyons. Ooh, when I was, like, driving down the Golden State Highway or whatever it's called, I was like, oh, my God, this is where, like, so many serial killers picked up people and murdered them and just dropped them and... But I was like, I never felt more alive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, despite its conceptual limitations, death row syndrome came to American consciousness in February of 2005 when the execution date of death row inmate Michael Ross was postponed. Ross, who had purportedly attempted suicide on three separate occasions while on death row, indicated repeatedly that he wished to waive his state and federally mandated appeals and volunteer for execution. Suggesting the waiver under these circumstances might not be legitimate, the judge in the case allegedly encouraged attorneys to investigate the possibility that Ross was incompetent. Following a determination that he was indeed competent to waive his appeals, he was then executed on May 13th, 2005, after being spent 18 years on Connecticut's death row. Ugh. So, one of the cases that I heard that, not from this journal, but that they actually had their sentence extended because they went crazy and were considered incompetent to waive their rights. That they were not in their right mind to waive their rights and be executed because of it. Wait, so what is it? What is the waive your rights thing? So... Do you have to waive your rights to be executed? Yeah, you have to waive your appeals and say that I want to be executed now instead oh. of the date that they gave me. So people on death row can appeal their verdict. And if they've been appealing and then they're like, no, I just would like to be executed now. How can they do that, though? I feel like there's, like, so many people in line. Like, is it really, like, instant? Or is it, like, I would like to be executed now, and then it's, like, a couple months away? Um, well, this says that it was February of 2005. Once they said, yes, he was competent, he was then killed in May of 2005. So it was still... So they basically schedule it far out so they have a chance to appeal. And then if they, like, want to just not appeal, they can waive their rights. Which... Why do they care if they're not competent or not? Like, y'all already said yeah, you're going to kill, kill them. them anyway. <laughs> like, what? What is this weird backwards moral code? Yeah, that they're supposed to be in their right mind and be able to die. Right. Yeah. So, although the term death row syndrome implies the construct is recognized in the mental health field, neither death row syndrome nor death row phenomenon is a recognized psychological concept 
At this time, neither term is accepted by the American Psychiatric Association or the American Psychological Association, and neither term appears in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders Number 4. I think we're on like 6 now. Yeah. Or I think... Yeah, I was thinking five. But yeah, this is also 2008, so it might still not be in there, but it's still like a phenomenon that like you can Mm -hmm. refer to. Then skipping down to the near the end of the journal, um, beyond competence, the relationship between death row syndrome and volunteering has constitutional implications. So if phenomenon created by our justice system has the effect of somehow causing individuals to waive their constitutional rights, this may account for coercion. Such a claim could support an Eighth Amendment argument about the constitutionality of the volunteering phenomenon or the effects of conditions of death row. Even if the death penalty itself is not unconstitutional, the manner in which it is currently being administered might be. Yeah, I mean, a death penalty sentence is pretty much just psychological torture. And I think, if I understood correctly... A lot of death row inmates are also in solitary. Which is just, you're literally forcing them to go crazy and then they can't waive their rights. So you're, oh, that's so fucked. All the poor people who are like stuck in solitary and literally losing their minds and just getting so sick and unwell and then they just die. Yeah, so I don't, I'm not for the death penalty. That's, yeah, I'm definitely, after all of that, I'm definitely not for the death penalty. I don't even care. I don't think anyone should have to be put through that. So moving away from that, because, like, my heart is heavy. So as of 2020, 5.2 million Americans were prohibited from voting due to laws that disenfranchise citizens convicted of felony offenses, according to the Sentencing Project. In North Carolina, if you've completed all parts of your sentence for a felony conviction or have been pardoned, you can vote. Only Maine, Vermont, Washington, D.C., and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico do not restrict voting rights of anyone with a felony conviction, even those in prison currently. So prisoners can... Ah! So imprisoned people who have felony convictions can still vote. I was like, why did you say, ah, like, what happened? And then I was like, oh, you just I'm trying to be politically correct. In 2020, D.C. was the first jurisdiction in the country to restore voting rights for people in prison. So that's cool. The denial of voting rights disproportionately affects black people. So this is, like, a very common theme within any conversation about prison is that black people and people of color are very disproportionately affected by Not even just prison. Prison, of course, but, like, laws and everything else in this fucking country that we live in. Black Americans of voting age are nearly four times as likely to lose their voting rights than the rest of the adult population, with one in every 16 black adults disenfranchised nationally. In total, that's 1.8 million black citizens. In 34 states, the Latinx population is disenfranchised at a higher rate than the general public, And this disenfranchisement started when English colonists brought the practice of, quote, civil death to North America, which is a set of criminal penalties that includes revocation of voting rights. So, of course, this is based in colonist ways. According to the Sentencing Project, political scientist Ward Elliott argues that the elimination of the property test as a voting qualification may help to explain 
the popularity of felony disenfranchisement policies as they served as an alternate means for wealthy elites to constrict the political power of the lower classes. So at one point, when America was very early on, you had to like own property to be able to vote. So when they took that away, they're like, all right, well, here's felony disenfranchisement policies. And here we are still today. And America's disenfranchisement is pretty harsh and severe. Almost half of European countries allow incarcerated people to vote. And in Canada, Israel, and South Africa, constitutional courts have ruled any restrictions of voting based on convictions is unconstitutional. Taking away someone's rights to vote makes it more difficult to get accustomed to life outside prison once released. Pretty much all of those came from the sentencing project. So Eli brought this up to me that something about the gray area of imprisoned people donating organs. So prisons typically do not allow imprisoned people to donate organs as living donors to anyone but immediate families. And apparently it's not illegal or like not allowed for imprisoned people to donate their organs, but it's highly discouraged given that imprisoned people are exposed to high risk environments for infectious disease. Ziggy, is he running in his sleep? I think he's running in his sleep and his toes are tapping on your chair. Okay. I was like, what? <laughs> oh. I was like, what? I was like, I swear I'm not doing anything. No, I think it's him. Okay. But yeah, so because like we talked about with the HIV and AIDS and tuberculosis and all the violence and things like that, it's just a higher risk. Will you move his little foot? I'll just move the chair. Yeah. But yeah, so they're exposed to high risk environments, violence, HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, disease. So it's just not desirable, I guess, for imprisoned people to donate their organs while they're in prison just because it's, I guess, more likely that it won't take as well. Also, imprisoned people are not able to consent to the procedure in a free and non-coercive environment is what some people argue because you're in jail, so you're pretty much in a stressful, I don't want to say under duress, but you're just in an environment where you're not how how could they prove that it was really voluntary? Okay, that too, with all the corruption in jail. And I'm thinking, like, you don't really have free will or, like, the ability to do what you want the way you do outside of jail. So, so imprisoned people are able to receive organs, probably mainly because it saves the prison money. So if an imprisoned person is on dialysis, it costs the prison roughly $120,000 a year, where a new kidney would only be a one-time cost of $110,000. They also say it's cruel and unusual to deny someone an organ transplant, to which, yes, I agree. But a lot of things about prison are cruel and unusual. So I really think that this is more of like a cost-cutting measure. They're like, yeah, of course, get the organ transplant, as long as I don't have to pay for your dialysis every year. Do they get... Isn't there like a waiting list, typically, for organ transplant? Yeah, but they don't take into consideration whether you're in prison or not. Okay. If you're on the list, you're on the list. And if it's your turn, you get your organ. Gotcha. I was thinking, like, it would be messed up if they, like, were put as, like, lower priority or not. No, they're not. But some states may allow compassionate early release to organ transplant receivers if the circumstances are right because they don't want to have to pay for costs of complications from the organ transplant. Like, if the organ doesn't take um, or if you just have a lot of health issues. So they might let you out of prison. Purely on because of the costs. Yeah, because they don't want to pay for that. Some people argue that people in prison should not receive organs if they have a history of violent crime because they violated someone else, which I do not necessarily agree with for a lot of reasons. But in order for that to be a sound argument, we would need a better judicial system to ensure that an innocent person is not wrongfully convicted and denied an organ. So it's kind of the same concept as like 
the death penalty. Like you can't, we, our system wrongfully convicts people a lot and then put them on death row is fucked up. So I think it's that same argument. Yeah. I read, it's a statistic that stuck in my head. I don't remember where it was from. Supposedly 40,000 to like 200,000 are wrongfully convicted. Yeah. That's a pretty big number. Yes, you can get a lawyer and get out of it, but when it's, like, something super serious, like, okay, maybe, like, a drug charge, like, whatever, it might be a little bit easier to get out of. Not that that's okay. You still shouldn't be wrongfully convicted for something like that, but, like, when it's murder or, like, like Kirk Bloodsworth, that case that I did, I think it was, like, episode 13 or 14 or something, he was wrongfully convicted of the murder of, like, a little girl, and he was in jail for, like, ever, for, like, a long-ass time, and he was on death row, and he didn't do it. So technically, there is no law saying that death row inmates cannot donate organs after their death, but since 2013, there have been no instances where an inmate requested their organs be donated that was approved. So they've all been denied by the state since 2013. So it's like, yes, there's no law, but they're also not letting it happen. Um, There is currently a debate as to whether current organ donation guidelines implicitly prohibit death row inmates from being donors, so I guess the wording is kind of ambiguous. Did you want to talk about prison reform? Yeah. So on somewhat of a lighter note, not that all this is going to help, but, you know, what they're trying to do. Um, this is from the sentencingproject.org. After nearly 40 years of continued growth, the U.S. prison population has stabilized in recent years. This is partially as a result of declining crime rates, but has largely been achieved through programmatic changes in policy and practice. For more than a decade, the political climate of criminal justice reform has been evolving towards evidence-based, common-sense approaches to public safety. This can be seen in a variety of legislative, judicial, and policy changes that have successfully decreased incarceration without adverse impacts on public safety. So, on a state level, they give two examples, one in California and one in New York. So, in California, California voters passed ballot measure Proposition 47 in 2014, which reclassified certain low-level property and drug crimes from felonies to misdemeanors and will reinvest some of the fiscal savings into prevention programs instead. New York policymakers reformed the Rockefeller drug laws in 2009, which imposed harsh mandatory minimum sentences for low-level drug offenses. And then on a federal level, in 2014, the United States Sentencing Commission unanimously voted to reduce executive sentences up to 46,000 people currently serving time for federal drug offenses. So I think they're realizing they fucked up in the war on drugs and there's too many people, so now they're doing a bunch of small things to try to get it down. Um, Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010, which reduced the disparity in sentencing downward crack and powder cocaine offenses. So what they suggest is eliminating mandatory minimum sentences and cutting back on excessively lengthy sentences, for example, by imposing a 20-year maximum on prison terms. I don't know if that means that they can only be charged with 20 years or the max that they can be charged with is by 20-year increments. I feel like it's like the maximum time they can spend is 20 years, which still feels like a long time to me. Our problem in the United States and probably elsewhere is that like we can never just admit that we're wrong and just like retroactively fix things. They just start putting like band-aids on things and trying to like fix it that way. It's like we just know it's not right. Like look at the studies, look at everything. Just let people out of jail. So the next bill point they have is shifting resources to community 
community-based prevention and treatment for substance abuse, which that's been a big one. Like, instead of throwing drug pe- people who users of drugs into jail for their usage, get them the help instead because jail isn't helping. No, it just makes them need the drugs more when they get out or, like, smuggle them in and then they're in jail for longer and it's just this stupid cycle. Yep. So investing in interventions that promote strong youth development and respond to delinquency in age-appropriate and evidence-based ways. So tell me they weren't doing things in evidence-based ways before. No. (laughs) I mean, to have that be their point now, be, like, evidence-based. Right. And then from... PrisonPolicy.org, an article labeled New Data State Prisons Are Increasingly Deadly Places by Leah Wang and Wendy Sawyer, which was published on June 8th of 2021. Um, This goes into healthcare and loosening the grip on the parole process. So their suggestions include um, to reduce risk is to reduce prison populations, and parole boards are a natural bottleneck on this end. Parole hearings and approval rates must increase in order to move large numbers of incarcerated people back into the communities despite many states failing to do this in 2020 when it was clearly a matter of life and death. Compassionate release should be ramped up and no one should be ordered to return to prison after recovering from an illness. Burdensome in-person check-ins should also be eliminated to reduce the incidence of low-level technical violations of parole and probation. Dozens of state legislatures are considering second-look policies to review cases for those currently serving excessive and costly sentences, once again, only because it costs so much. Releasing people, especially older, sicker people, would certainly mitigate those costs. Medical care aside, correctional officers must respond swiftly to sick calls and emergencies. Providing high-quality treatment for substance use disorders should prevent incarcerated people from turning to desperate and dangerous solutions. State correctional agencies must acknowledge the scale of drug smuggling facilitated by correctional staff. Prison staff should be subject to stricter security measures and enduring consequences. So shifting it off of the prisoners and onto the guards. And as we have learned through the pandemic, improving ventilation, access to healthcare coordination with public health departments, and reducing population density by releasing more people from prison can prevent countless deaths when infectious disease enters prison. And if you want more information, you can read Mass Incarceration, The Whole Pie by Wendy Saver and Peter Wagner. Cool. Okay, so one final fun thing that we're going to talk about is the Concord Prison Experiment, which Eli found. So the Concord Prison Experiment conducted from 1961 to 1963, and the purpose of this, they gave a bunch of psychoactive drugs to the people who were imprisoned and essentially it was to see whether or not in X amount of years if they're going to be a better person for it or not. Basically, they just gave imprisoned people shrooms. Yeah. (laughs) And what I thought was the funniest thing about it was that the, the man leading the experiment gave himself shrooms too in the experiment. And he said the reason why was so that they didn't feel like ostracized or they didn't feel like test subjects so he was like i'll just do it with them i'm like dude you just wanted to trip shrooms with a bunch of imprisoned people like what the heck but they did find that it like ended up working um, yeah like the recidivism rates were very low and like the people the personality test afterwards like the people generally were just like happier better people which i am so pro shroom like 
I'm, I just, I love shrooms. I think they're so good for people. I mean, obviously not like all the time, but I think it's just like earth's little dose of like, come back to yourself. So I totally like am in support of that. But I just thought that was really funny that he was like, you know, I'm just going to do them with you. (laughs) Do you have anything else you want to add? No, that is it on my end. Okay. Thank you so much, Eli, for being on this episode. It was really fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's it's been like six months since we've talked about this. I know because I'm so like... At first, I was worried I wasn't going to have people who wanted to be on the podcast, and I've had a lot more interest than I thought, which is awesome. And then I have to find the right topic for the right person, and then we just kind of casually came to this one. But yeah, I don't know how. <laughs> yeah, we're just casually <laughs> talking about prisons. <laughs> um, but it was good, so I appreciate you coming on. All right, skeptics, you know what to do. Leave us a five star rating. Share this podcast with your friends and family, and your coworkers, and your everyone. <laughs> I don't know, other groups of people. Follow us at ProfSkep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can email me at professionalskepticismpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash ProfSkep Podcast. And a website is on the way. I love you guys. Stay sus. I'll see you next week. Okay, bye guys! Bye!